All right, this morning we're going to be finishing up our, uh, or beginning to finish up our series that we've had throughout the summer, discussing the topics that people at Woodland Hills wanted to have preached on, the, the most interesting or most controversial topics that they felt needed to be addressed. And the last topic to be addressed in this summer series is the topic of divorce and remarriage. And it is, in some ways, the hardest one to address, and in some ways, for us, it's the most important to address. In fact, I want to take this week and next week to talk about this topic. Um, I'm going to push back the beginning of the Ephesians thing back to uh, probably the 24th um, of September. But we've got eternity anyway, so let's not rush things. I want to hover on this because I think it's so important. Not least because there's many people at Woodland Hills who are here because they have felt that this is a place where if you're divorced and remarried, it's not a permanent stigma on you. Still, there are people I know of this morning who stayed away from this sermon. And I, they told me about it or told someone about it because they were afraid. And that is, I think, very sad. Not about them, but about what they've gotten in the past. Somehow it's gotten around that in the evangelical church, and there's reasons for this, and we're going to talk about them, but, but there's an assumption or a stigma a stereotype, a perception, or what have you. That you, you could be a murderer and still be okay with God. You could be, have almost any crime on your record and still be okay with God. But somehow if you're divorced, and especially divorced and remarried, that somehow it's forgivable. It's not the unforgivable sin, but you're forever a second-class Christian. There's things you can no longer do, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and we're going to talk about the scriptural basis for that, especially next week, for that misconception. But it's sad to me that the good news, which is the gospel, has ceased to be good to people who have gotten involved in covenants and then gotten out of those covenants, namely the marriage stuff. And so this is a real important topic for us to talk about. This week, I'm going to just lay the foundation, a very important foundation, I think, that determines how you view this issue, but also almost any issue that we could talk about. And then next week, we'll deal with some of the more particular passages, uh, exegetical questions, uh, and get into those. There's three verses I want to read uh, this morning. One of them that's on, in your bulletin, I'm not going to read. I'm going to save that for next week. And one of them I want to read is not in your bulletin. It comes from Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where the Lord simply says this. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I hate divorce. The Lord goes on record as saying, this is one of the things that I do not like. I hate it. But though he hates it, he deals with it. And the first place in the Bible that we find God dealing with the reality of divorce is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's in your bulletins. The Lord says this. It's a very interesting passage. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, stop. In that culture, the woman wasn't allowed to find anything indecent about the man. The man could divorce the woman, but the woman could not divorce the man. So God here is acquiescing to this culture and trying to minimize a very damaging thing by putting some parameters around the practice of divorce. In this case, it always involved a man divorcing a woman. He says, if that happens, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, or in the Hebrew it could be, then let him write her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after he leave, she leaves his house, 
She becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband, listen to this, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. It's assumed that she will remarry. Being single in ancient Israeli culture is not an option for a woman. She'll remarry, but she can't remarry the guy that divorced her. Just chew on that for a second. The second verse is Ezra chapter 10. Now, the Lord hates divorce. But sometimes, as in Ezra chapter 10, and as also as in one other place in the Bible, the Lord commands it. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekaniah, blah, blah, whatever his name is, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam. I don't know, why does the Bible put that? Who cares, you know, that guy. Said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away, to divorce all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of our Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. The Lord hates divorce, but here he tells the children of Israel to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, this is a uh, real important and difficult topic. And God, there's a balance that I cannot strike, and I, I, we need you to be here to strike it. Lord, on the one hand, I would pray that every married couple would go out of here with shutting the divorce door possibility, and that they would fear divorce, that they'd run from it because you hate it. At the same time, Lord, I pray with just as much energy that your spirit would be working for those who have been divorced and those who have maybe been divorced and remarried and maybe those who have done this a couple of times, Lord, that your grace and your freedom and your liberty and forgiveness and opportunity, Lord, would flow on them like Niagara Falls and just surround them and envelop them in your love. God, but that's a balance I can't strike. Use my words to strike it in our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Could you guys bring out the works of art? I, I want to start by showing you guys something. Um, in our house, we don't use about half of our garage. Half of our garage is filled with uh, art. And I want to show you some of the pieces of art that I have. These are some... Uh, thanks, you guys. Uh, it doesn't have to... Yeah, however. Nothing else has worked this morning. Why should that? These are pieces of art that my son, Nathan, created. And I'm very proud of them. Um, I asked his permission if I could talk about his artwork uh, in church. And at first he said, no. And I said, why? He says, because then I'll be famous. And, and, <laughs> and I, I assured him that the fame would die quickly, you know. Uh, but I, I said, I don't think you'll be very famous, Nathan, but, but you might help one or two people learn about Jesus. And um, he says, they can learn about Jesus from my artwork? I said, sure. I see Jesus all over that artwork. And he was pretty excited about that. So he said, okay, you can talk about my artwork. What I love about this artwork is this. It seems to me that one of the most important things to learn in life, if you're going to live it vibrantly, and if you're going to live it passionately, if you're going to live with a sense of carefreeness and openness and spontaneity, one of the most important things you're going to need to live as a full human being 
is learning how to adapt, learning how to be flexible, learning how to be creative, and learning how to take obstacles and even failures and turn them creatively into opportunities. I think that's the sine qua non of having a full life. And it seems to me what that, to say that is to say this, to live fully, you need to become like a little kid. Because little kids are great at that. And I believe there's a lot of God revealed in the way little kids, at least some little kids, healthy little kids operate. What I love about this artwork is this. None of the masterpieces you see up here began intentionally trying to be what they are. Rather, they are works of transformation. I should put these in a show because I have seen works of art sell for $15,000 that weren't better than this. I mean, I... That's true. I, it is, this, is, this is great stuff. What you, this here, this started as a uh, rabbit cage. It was going to be a rabbit cage. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, we, 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 we tried to make a rabbit cage, but we just couldn't make something that a rabbit would be happy in, let alone stay in. And so um, we finally gave up on that. We turned it into a desk. It was going to be a desk, but we, we screwed up on the desk, and it was really frustrating. We kind of beat our heads a little bit. But we sat back and looked at the thing, and by golly, if that doesn't look like a sled. And, and, and so we, see, and, and you can sit right here, and you got a control panel right here, and here's the sort of steering mechanism. And it's not a sled that goes down a hill, but it's a sled that you can pretend like it goes down a hill, and it's really good at that. And so we made a great sled, and he felt great about it, and I think it's the best sled that was ever made. And what we got over here, this started as a, we needed a, a basketball hoop, and he wanted to make a basketball hoop. And, and the post is really good, but the hoop was really difficult. <laughs> and we got it done, and it's not the kind of thing you could ever put a basket through, but it makes one doggone good giant Klingon ship. If you just look at it right, it, it just sort of flows. And this is a, a really cool thing. You can run around the yard like this and and all sorts of stuff. Klingon ship. What you have here, this started as a chair. <laughs> Very painful chair. He's <laughs> trying to sit on it. <clears throat> so we screwed up on the chair. Uh, plan A didn't work, but thank goodness you can always see a plan B and a plan A. And if you just looked at it right, you know, you looked at the places, especially the places that don't look like a chair, if you concentrate on them and, 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 and you don't see them as failures, but maybe as possibilities, you see you got a really good boat plane here. One of these pontoon planes with a single pontoon, and that thing can just fly down, and it's kind of got this thing on it, like an air, and it flows down there, and it can land. And this is a real good boat plane, and it floats like that, a pontoon plane. And if you, if you turn it over, what you have is a A number one fish flare. You can put the fish right there. We did this with a bullhead the other day. Just pounded the nail right through the bullhead, got some pliers, you peel the skin back, as very delicious, very creative, the best, the best doggone fish filleting thingy bobber that anyone's ever made. And this thing here started as a, what did I, I forget what it started as, but it turned into a duck, not just an ordinary duck, but a robot duck. You can kind of see that it's a robot duck. And you just got to have a certain kind of mind to look at it. Now, given, and we got a ton of this stuff in our garage, and it's all beautiful. In my opinion, it's the best artwork ever made. Because of his love for, for woodwork and stuff, I went out and bought him a, a wood carving set. I thought maybe he'd like to, you know, get better, quote unquote, at this stuff. 
And so I got this wood carving set I was going to bring it, but I forgot. But this wood carving set's got this uh, real fancy sort of drill, or yeah, drill in it, and it's got a saw, a uh, table saw thing, and, and it comes with this real fine wood, and it's got this sanding kind of thing, and, and, and it comes with a, a, a booklet, and the booklet's got all these blueprints in it, all these outlines, a nice plane that you can build, and you just got to take the outline, take the blueprint, put it on the wood, and you got to shave around it, you know, and you can put the pieces together in a certain kind of way, and that plane can actually fly, or you can build a real cool kind of a boat with a certain kind of wood, and cutting it the right way, if you just follow the blueprint, and that boat will float, and you got a car that can actually have wheels on it, and it was an utter disaster trying to do this stuff. It was not fun. Because what we found is this. You put down the blueprint and you try to follow that blueprint. And the trouble with a blueprint is that if you screw up on it, oh, you can put glue on it, but now you got a plane that looks like you screwed up with it. And you can't change the blueprint of a plane into a pontoon boat. You just can't do that. The best you can do is to have a second-class plane, and if you're building a boat and you screw up on it and you, you cut the corners a little bit, the, the boat leaks and it's not a good boat, and so you can't transform it into a pogo stick or something. All you got is a stupid boat. And you, it's no fun because you get all nervous. You're sitting down there and you got to pay so much close attention, you know, you know, and it's no fun and you worry and you, then you inevitably screw up and the more you worry, the more you screw up. And so Nathan starts getting down on himself and thinking he's stupid and he's no good and he'll never be a carpenter and all that. So he said, to heck with this wood carving set. Let's go out and build ourselves some, some robot ducks. Well, you don't need a stupid blueprint. You wonder what on earth does all this have to do with divorce? And I think it has a lot to do with divorce because it has a lot to do with how we look at things. The question is this. What kind of God do we serve? Is God more like a little kid building robot ducks and Klingon ships over out of basketball hoops and little boats, or, or is God more like a blueprint, woodcarver deity who has a blueprint, and you've got to follow it. And if you screw up, well, there's always some forgiving glue there, but it's going to be a second-class plane that's going to always fly a little bit off, or a boat that's going to let in a little bit of water, or a car that's going to have wobbling wheels. It just will never match up. And the blueprint is always there to remind you of how you screwed up. See, what, what, what gets me on the divorce remarriage issue, and this is also pertains to any issue we could apply to, is this. I believe that many people have an idea of God that is much more like the wood-carving blueprint kind of deity than it is the little child who makes an ingenious piece of art or out of a failure. Several years ago, I think I shared this with you about a year ago, but I, I'll share it with you again. I, I, I did a poll among a, a class that I had, and among the questions that I asked was this question, what is the thing that you fear most in life? And the single most common answer that I got out of these evangelical students was this answer. I fear missing the will of God, or I fear screwing up the perfect will of God for my life. And the understanding that was operative there was this. These kids, I believe, were living their life like me and Nathan were doing this wood carving set. Very nervous, very, very nervous that we might screw up someplace, because if you screw up, the best you can do is have a defective plane the rest of your life. And they lived in that kind of a fear. And the idea was that the all-holy, all-perfect God, and He is all-holy and all-perfect, but He's got this blueprint, you see, this ideal for your life. 
And if you just pray enough, and if you fast enough, and if you read your Bible enough, and if you go to church enough, and if you pay tithes and do the other little hoop tricks that you're supposed to do, well, then you'll be in God's will. You'll be going on track. Things will be going smooth. And you will find the right mate, and you'll raise perfect kids, and things are going to turn out wonderful. You'll have the right job. You'll have the right ministry. Things are going to go hunky-dory. You'll live ever, happily ever after, and then you go to heaven. But if you screw up, well, there's really no getting back on the blueprint now, is there? You cut the corners, the tires are going to wobble, the boat's going to sink, and the planes are going to fly crooked. And they feared that. One of the things they feared at their age, these Bethel students, single students, is, is this. They believe that, and I find a lot of Christians believe this, and I have never been able to find one verse that supports this view, but they believe that in all the world there's one person out there for them, one and only one among the six million, there's Mr or Mrs. Wright, or Miss Wright, not Mrs. Wright, and she's not, by definition she's not right for you, but Miss Wright. <laughs> and they have this, it's kind of a, we could call it the sleepless in Seattle Christian syndrome for all of you who saw sleepless in Seattle. Oh, it makes your eyes glaze over just to think about it. That there's that one out there, and they're already sort of glowing, and, and when you meet them on that some enchanted evening, you will meet a stranger in a crowded room, and somehow you know, I forget the rest of the lyrics, but, but it really clicks. The doors are going to open, the, the buzzes are going to go off, the, the chemistry will be right. It turns out you've been praying for each other all this time. These, these are people who pray for their spouse when they're 13, because they, out there they say, God, pr protect him, keep him from infidelity, keep him on the straight and narrow, and all that kind of stuff, so that when we meet in those Bethel dorms on that fateful day, <laughs> that dreadful day, <laughs> We will know and we'll be preserved for each other. Now, it seems to me that if it's a blueprint and God's doing it, it's all subtle anyway, so why are you praying about it? But they don't think it in those terms. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong with that, one of which is this. I guarantee you that six months into your marriage, you will be questioning whether this is the best person on the whole planet for you. Surely, God, you could have some, found somebody who knows how to put the toilet seat down. Surely, God, you could have found somebody. I have a fetish on this, and they just happen to do this all the time, and this is driving me crazy. Some people then begin to blame themselves and they begin to think, oh, you know, maybe it, was, maybe it was that guy I dated as a senior in high school that I was supposed to marry. He was the right one. You know, and I wasn't praying enough then and I wasn't reading my Bible and no wonder I didn't hear the call of God. And people do this. They think, maybe I should dump this joker and go back to Mr. Wright back there. Why did I give him up? Or sometimes they blame God and I've seen this happen a number of times. You get in a marriage and it's really bad. Maybe it's even cruel. Maybe it's very, very painful. And yet it seemed like all the buzzers went off. It was God's will. All the green lights in the world were there, and then you blame God. God, why did you lead me into this pit hole called a marriage? And in general, in terms of how you live your life, people who live with this blueprint idea see things as either black or the white. You're either on track or you're off track, and there's nothing in between. And the standard of how to really make the plane, the standard of how to make the boat, the standard of how to make the car, and how to do it right and how to do it perfect, it's always right there. To remind you in case you screw up, and it turns out that most people most of the time do screw up. And that means that to some degree, yes, there's forgiveness, but you're always going to wobble a little bit. You're always going to sink a little bit. And sin becomes and failures become something that's irreversible and you can never get back up to par. The abortion, the affair that you had, the premarital sex that you had, the extramarital affairs that you had, or the greed that you had, or the way you neglected your kids when they needed you most, or all the failures that you've had, or the, the, the marriage covenant that you broke, there's always a voice there saying, well, yeah, you know, you can still go to church and you're forgiven, but 
I'm really disappointed, you know. I had plan A all set out for you, you know, and then you've screwed up. And now this is the best we can do. There's a stigma there, a stain there, and you can never get back to the best. But you see, what I want to say to you this morning is this, and this is the fundamental thing. Whether we're talking about divorce or whether we're talking about forgiveness for an affair or whether we're talking about the abortion or whether we're talking about just cruelty to your spouse or whatever we're talking about, that God is a God who's reflected a lot in my little Nathan. And maybe plan A gets screwed up, but there's a plan B, and doggone it, this God is smart enough and creative enough and ingenious enough to make plan B different than plan A, but just as good. If we're just willing to take with him the screwed up blueprint that we've got and lay it at his feet and say, Lord, can you make something out of this? And if I, if I find just delight in my kids' artistic work, is that not of God? <laughs> Isn't God like that to some degree? Saying, look what I can do with this. Look what I can create with this. God is all holy. God is all just. God is perfectly righteous. He's not a moral relativist God. He's not an I'm okay, you're okay God. He's not a do your own thing and I'll look the other way kind of a God. He's a God who is all holy and he does have a standard. But for just that reason, and he calls sin, sin when it is sin. He calls it. He doesn't pretend. But if he were a blueprint God, if he were a woodcarver God, I got a word for you this morning and that is that each one of us, none of us, would, would have a chance of ever living with him eternally. Because all of us, there isn't one person here who hasn't sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who hasn't five times or 50 times or 500 times screwed up on the blueprint, and maybe you did it that many times this morning. And if it's not for the grace of God, we don't stand a chance. But see, God is so far from being a woodcarver God, a blueprint God, that he finds a way. He loves people more than he loves rightness. He loves mercy more than he loves, loves judgment. He loves... He loves salvation more than he loves damnation. And so he finds a way, he goes to whatever extent to find a way to bring good out of evil, to find a way to put the scrambled eggs back together, to find a way to put the Humpty Dumpty into one piece again, to find a way to restore fallen humanity to make him harmonious with himself. And so far is God from being a, blue car, a, a, a blueprint woodcarver God that this God is willing to get involved in the mess of our life. When we fell in Eden, he could have said, well, I had a great plan here, folks. I gave you a great chance here, folks. It could have went well, but you blew it, you botched it. Now forget the whole bunch of you. He could have done that. But God rather says, okay, look, we're not going to make a boat out of this, but maybe we can make a desk. And if we can't make a desk, maybe we can make a sled. If we can't make a sled, maybe we can make a Klingon ship. But I know that I'm smart enough, and I know that I'm great enough, and I know that I'm powerful enough to bring something good, something beautiful out of this whole thing so he doesn't give up on us. And he works with us. He's not a prudish kind of God, a standoffish God that says, ooh, you've messed up and now the alternatives are all messy beneath me and so I'm not going to deal with you. Rather, this God says, I, 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 my, love, my love constrains me to pursue and to pursue and to pursue to the point where the Bible says in the person of Jesus Christ, God Almighty became one of us. This is a God who will go to any extremes to, to work with the mild, to find the plan B, to find the plan C, to creatively bring out of failure something that is beautiful to the point where he's willing to go to the cross of Calvary and take upon himself all of our humanity, all of our finitude, all of our weakness, all of our frailty, and all of our sin, and all of our damnation, and all of our judgment, and all of our punishment, and everything that we would have got. He takes it upon himself. Why? To make it such that he can 
be flexible with us and work with us and save us and we can stand pure and spotless before his eyes so he can make trophy cases out of sinners like me. This is a God who's the farthest from being a prudish woodcarver God there, there can be. He doesn't stand off. He dives in. What can I make out of this? What can I make out of this? And so it is in each one of our lives. What he does for humanity, he does with each one of us. I don't know where my plan A even was. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where plan B is. I, I'm, I'm probably working on L or M. And when we get to Z, I know God's alphabet is infinite. <laughs> Praise God. But I know this, that if I just surrender it to him and say, God, I don't know why I did what I did, but I'm sorry. And it's sin, and it's ugly. Can you do something with it? He's able to say, you know, in, in the kingdom of God, I got, I got a real neat niche for this. Okay, this won't be a desk. Forget this desk thing. But what a sled this is going to make. What a robot bird this is going to be. What a beautiful boat plane I can make out of this. What an incredible Klingon ship I can make out of this. Surrender your pain. Surrender the wrongs that you've done. Surrender the wrongs that have been done to you. Surrender all the nightmares, all the failures, all the shortcomings, everything that you have. Surrender it to the Lord and He can do something with it. You know what's really profound, I think, is, is what we don't find in the Gospels. What we don't find in the Gospels is Jesus ever, ever performing an inquisition into people's past. Past. And He had some pretty shady people that I'm interested in what their past was, but He doesn't seem to be interested. Because from his infinitely wise and loving perspective, the only thing about your past that's worth even considering if you're a follower of Jesus is what he can do with it now, now that you've surrendered it to him. So you, with a Mary Magdalene, you don't find him even asking, what did you do to get so messed up? I mean, how on earth did you get yourself in this kind of a mess? Tell me your life history. How did this? You don't find him interested in that. What he says is, do you want to follow me? That's the only thing that's important. She's got six, seven demons. <laughs> I want to know how they got there. And Jesus says the only thing that's important is we can get them out. We can make something beautiful out of this. And a Matthew, the tax collector, who makes a living ripping off his own people. And a Simon the Zealot, who makes a living killing tax collectors. That's interesting. Not a word about their past. What's important is what God can do with them, how God can use them, the artwork that God can build out of their shattered lives now that they're going to follow him. And the woman caught in the act of adultery. There's an interesting story right in the very act. How did you, you know, you talk about making your bed and now, you know, having to lay on it. What an opportunity to do that. Well, look at the mess you've gotten yourself into. I'm, I'm the son of God. I'm too holy to deal with this kind of a mess. You don't even have a good alternative here. I'm not going to compromise myself by even giving you any advice. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. If there's a person involved here, he loves them and wants to get involved. And if you're working on C, and C is not possible, let's go to plan D. And let's see what we can create out of here. And this isn't about being second rate or being mediocre or whatever. This is about simply saying, okay, we got a new starting point. Let's see what, what beautiful thing, what marvelous thing we can weave out of this whole thing. So this isn't a God who pries into their past, and so it is with us. The only thing that's important when you come to the Lord, the only thing that's important is what God can do with you now. If you bring all that you are, bring the past abortion, bring the divorce, bring the, bring the struggling marriage now, bring the failure with the kids, bring the habit that you're addicted to, bring the things that you said that you shouldn't have said, bring the, the nightmares that you carry on with you, bring all the stuff that the enemy uses to condemn you and lay it at the foot of the cross. 
And then the Lord is like this beautiful artist who can say, I can, why this is, I, I, can, I can make something beautiful out of this. And it's not a second-rate thing. It's a beautiful thing. What does this have to do with divorce? Let me just apply this to this particular issue. I think this is true for all of us. Man, I'm feeling anointed. <laughs> that I remember, my dad's still here. This is his last service here. I love my dad and my stepmom is here. I remember when I used, to, I used to make some contraptions for you. Do you remember that? I used to make, this is just like, it's in the jeans. It's in the jeans. So we should have been great artists. But I used to make these things, uh, and I, I don't even know what they were. But I, I, I would put them together. Nathan does this sometimes too. I say, Nathan, what are you building? And sometimes he says, I don't know. I'm not done with it yet. And, and, and that's how I used to make things. I used to make these, these rubber band deals and I, or, or these erector sets. And I'd make something. I'd bring it upstairs and show Dad. And I'd say, Dad, look what I made. Look what I made. And he'd go, oh, what a cool, um, yeah, yeah, that cool uh, robot. It's not a robot. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to say robot. What a cool, uh, you know. And Thanks for, 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 for affirming that. I wonder I'm a mechanical dud, though. <laughs> you should have set me straight. Okay, on the divorce thing. Four things, real quickly, four minutes, four points on, on the passage we read for the, this morning. They all confirm that God is this kind of a God when it comes to dealing with this issue. This issue is not the exception to the rule. It fits into it. Number one, God hates divorce. He says it in Malachi. God hates all sin. He, being a holy God, he can't do otherwise. And this one is particularly big. We don't have to minimize this. We don't have to dance around it. It's not a matter of grace to try to minimize sin. Sin is sin. Let's deal with it. God hates it. Marriage is very crucial to society. It's the glue that holds society together. It's one of the central things, the ingredients that, that's there for an individual's well-being and for a family's well-being and therefore for society's well-being. And when that covenant falls apart, it's harmful, it's painful, it's damaging to individuals, to children, and society. So God goes on record as saying, I don't like it. And what that's got to say to all of us here this morning that are married is this. If there is anything, anything salvageable about the painful struggle that you're in that you call a marriage, shut the divorce door and do whatever you've got to do to make this thing work. Our society has a real flippant attitude about that whole thing, and that's simply not an attitude that a believer can accept. This is big stuff, big stuff. The second point, though, is this. It starts with Deuteronomy 24. God hates divorce, but he doesn't pretend like it doesn't happen. God's very realistic. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't happen. He says when in Deuteronomy 24, he recognizes that in a fallen world where many marriages are modeled after Genesis 3.16 that we talked about last week, where the husband's trying to control the wife and the wife's trying to manipulate the woman, their power encounters, in a world like that where there's all sorts of hardness, all sorts of sin, all, all these bad variables, you can't even begin to sort them out, Divorce is going to happen, and it should not happen, but it does happen. And when it does happen, God doesn't pretend like it doesn't happen. Sometimes people say, well, okay, you're divorced in society's eyes, but in God's eyes, you're still married. There's nothing in the Bible that supports that. In this verse, in fact, if that was the case, then why would God prohibit the divorced woman from going back to her first husband? The one person she's not allowed to remarry is her first husband. Sometimes people try to, different churches try to say this, well, okay, you got a divorce, well then we have to figure out a way to say that you weren't really married. Okay, that's another thing. We have to annul the marriage. We have to pretend like, the, you know, okay, you lived together for 12 years, but it really wasn't a marriage in God's eyes, so it's not really a divorce, so technically speaking, you can still be okay. God's not that sophisticated. <laughs> He's not. 
When you take the vow societally, you're married, and when you take a vow to leave one another, you're divorced. And he regards the marriage as being a uniting, and he regards the divorce as being the ending of the covenant. There's no pretending here. There's no loopholes. In fact, the main thing, the main thing that we're going to see next week that you find throughout the Bible is this. Really, I'm basically saying, quit the playing of the games. Quit the technicalities. Who's right? When's the legal? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's all sin. It shouldn't happen, but it does happen. And when it happens, we're going to deal with it. This isn't a God who says, oh, I told you before I don't like it. Why are you dealing with it now? I don't want to even touch this thing. But rather, God says this. Divorce happens, and I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't happen. In fact, I'm going to get involved in it. And so that leads to the third point that you find from Deuteronomy 24. What you find in Deuteronomy 24 in a nutshell is this. The Lord basically, he's saying, I don't like divorce, but if you're going to do it, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Now, in one sense, it's all wrong, but in another sense, there's more wrong ways of doing it. There's a wronger way of doing it than the other. Oh, man. What he basically does in Deuteronomy 24 is he tries to protect the woman who in this society had no rights whatsoever, who could be thrown away like a used handkerchief if the man wanted it to. She couldn't divorce the man, but the man could divorce her. And so the Lord says this, if divorce is going to occur, you have to write a bill of divorce. Write a bill. There's some kind of official thing going on there, which most scholars believe is there, to slow down the process. It was the case in some cultures, in some circumstances, that the man could, if you just repeated three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, bam, she had to leave. Out, out in the cold. She had to leave because he owned the house. He owned everything. She had no rights. Next day, she has to be a prostitute. Or she has to get remarried very quick, and that's why the Bible always assumes that the woman's going to get remarried. What the Lord's doing here is saying, you've got to slow down. This is big stuff. This is important stuff. Don't be frivolous about this. So he says, write a bill of divorce. And then his precaution about the woman not being able to return to the man is there to say this. You've got to know this, husband, if you're going to let go of this wife, you cannot turn her into a ping-pong ball that you're going to batter back and forth with your friends. If you, if you kick her out, you can never have her back again. So think long and hard about this one. What it tells us is this. God, you know, on one hand you say, well, God, well, why are you even compromising yourself by, by uh, dealing with these, you know, substandard people? Why are you even working with a plan B? The reason is because God is a God of love and a God who's realistic. And there is no depth to which we can sink that he's not willing to say, okay, let's start here and start working our way up. The message we need to hear is this. God is a creative genius of all failures, and I'm speaking here primarily to divorced people. Divorce is a matter of a failed covenant. And, and next week we'll talk about some of the passages that Jesus gave and, and some of the technicalities that people get involved in. When is it, when's the, what's the exception clause and all that kind of stuff. But the most fundamental thing, the all-important thing is this. What spectacles do you wear when you look at this issue? What spectacles do you wear when you look at any issue? And the all-important thing there is, I believe this. We need to understand that we're not dealing with a God who's inflexible, a God who has the blueprint up there and is disgusted with anything else. We are all sinners. We've all blown the blueprint. That doesn't excuse it or minimize it, but it just states something that's real. But what's also real and what's also crucial to know is that whatever situation I'm in, however screwed up the chair has gotten, however bad the boat has gotten, however lousy the, 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 the basketball hoop is, however bad the rabbit cage is, there's always God there who in his love and in his creative wisdom is saying, I can do something very, very beautiful with that. You are not a loser. You are not a loser, and you don't need to go the rest of your Christian life with a voice in the back of your head saying, I'm disappointed with you. Praise God for his love.
there can be a voice that sounds a whole lot like my voice to Nathan, and that is, what a wonderful sled. What a wonderful sled we can make together. Father, I pray, Lord God, that your hatred towards divorce would be in us. God, all who are married, that they would run from that, Lord. That we would not in any way buy into our culture's relativism and flim attitude towards this whole thing. Holy Spirit, do your work among couples right now that are struggling and maybe even thinking about divorce. I pray, God, that you would be working there. Father, I also pray for those who are here this morning and are divorced once or twice or whatever, whatever the situation is. I pray, God, that this could be for them a new starting point, Lord, and that they could, Lord, surrender. That your Spirit be working with them to surrender the fragments of their life, including the fragments of their past covenant, and maybe the fragments of their heart, and the fragments of their loneliness, and the fragments of the shame that even the church has put upon them, Lord, and I pray that they could surrender that to you, and that you could, through your Spirit, communicate to them that you can make something beautiful out of that. You're the God who never quits, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.